0: Will this institution
1: survive the stench that this creates? Good question, Madam Justice. I don't know that it will.
2: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Plowns to the left Joke to the right.
1: Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's K G-O-E. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ concord new hampshire's wnhn fayetteville Arkansas's kpsq in seattle on kodx jamesville wisconsin's wadr in minneapolis st paul's am 950 ktnf we also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the progressive voices channel netroots radio radio for humans fyi nation NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, uh, brother. Uh, Kind of a grim program, I'm (laughs) afraid, Uh, but thank you for being here for it. A fourth student, a 17-year-old boy, died on Wednesday from wounds that he received uh, that he suffered when a 15-year-old sophomore opened fire at a Michigan high school a day earlier on Tuesday. Authorities announced that earlier today. It happened on the Same day the shooting did. They happened on the same day that school officials actually met with the boy's parents to discuss, quote, concerning behavior by their son. That, according to reports late this afternoon, the other three victims who were killed included a 16 year old boy who died in a deputy's patrol car on the way to the hospital. Seven others were wounded in the attack, some critically, including a 14-year-old girl who has been placed on a ventilator after surgery. Investigators are still trying to determine a motive for the shooting on Tuesday at Oxford High School. That's roughly 30 miles north of Detroit. Detroit. The 15-year-old shooter's father had apparently purchased the 9 millimeter semi-automatic pistol that was used in the shooting just days earlier on Friday, according to the Oakland County, Michigan Sheriff. The four students who were, who were uh, killed were identified as 16-year-old Tate Meyer, 14-year-old Hannah St. Juliana, 17-year-old Madison Baldwin, and the 17-year-old Justin Schilling, who died On Wednesday, a teacher who received a graze wound to the shoulder left the hospital, but seven, seven students ranging in age from 14 to 17 remained hospitalized through the night with gunshot wounds. The gun that the boy was carrying still had seven more rounds of ammo in it when he eventually surrendered to authorities. We live in a very broken world and a very broken country when a story like that uh, isn't pretty much all that we have to talk about today. Sadly, it isn't uh, because we do now live in a broken country with a broken federal government and broken federal judiciary. In fact, a delegitimate stolen federal judiciary, at least at its highest levels. At the U.S. Supreme Court, where the Republicans who helped assure our broken government packed three justices onto the Supreme Court in an unprecedented fashion to assure themselves a 6-3 to advantage on the court, which is likely to reverberate for generations. That stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court met on Wednesday morning to hear a challenge to a 50-year-old matter of settled law, or at least what we all thought should be was settled law, with the state of Mississippi in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a challenge to the last-standing abortion clinic in the entire state of Mississippi, now threatening to end the well-established, repeatedly-affirmed right for a woman to have the freedom to choose an abortion During the approximately first two trimesters of her pregnancy, the state of Mississippi, which filed this case prior to the death of longtime abortion rights proponent, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the state actually changed their pleading with the high court after her death to not just allow the state's ban on all abortions after 15 weeks, but to specifically requests that the court overturn the entire Roe v. Wade precedent set back in 1973. The state made that change to their filing only after Bader Ginsburg died and was replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, a far-right Republican judge who was rammed onto the court with only the votes of Republican senators. Not one single Democrat voted for her. Literally eight Days before last year's presidential election, after Republicans had changed Senate rules to end the use of the filibuster in order to block the uh, lifetime, to block lifetime appointments for the Supreme Court justices that the Republicans had no problem doing away with. Um, She, uh, Coney Barrett, was the third far right justice added to the court by Republicans as nominated by the disgraced, twice-impeached former President Donald Trump. It was with that backdrop that the high court heard arguments to overturn Roe v. Wade and the federally protected liberty, the longstanding right to have an abortion, on Wednesday. And for those who believe in freedom of choice and liberty... For those who oppose actual big government intervention into the private medical lives of Americans, as opposed to those who simply pretend to do so on the political right, it was, at least in my opinion on Wednesday, not a very good day at all. The Supreme Court's Republican-appointed right-wing majority as AP reports it this afternoon, signaled that it would uphold Mississippi's unprecedented 15-week ban on abortion and may go much further to overturn the nationwide right to abortion that has existed for nearly 50 years, just as the state requested once they realized the court majority had changed to favor their radical anti-freedom position. The fate of the court's historic 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion throughout the United States and its 1992 ruling in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which reaffirmed Roe by, at the time in 1992, examining the precedent uh, set by Roe, uh, determining it to be settled law or so-called stare decisis. the decision here on all of this probably won't be known until next june but after nearly two hours of arguments all six republican justices ap calls them conservative justices but they are not conservative as they are opposed to you know things like settled law and established constitutional freedoms and they favor big government intervention into the private lives of americans That would allow big government to mandate that a woman must carry the child of her rapist, even if that rapist was her own father. Uh, Those six Republican justices, as I heard them and as AP appears to have have heard them as well, indicated that they would uphold the Mississippi law at a minimum eating away at Roe's protection at personal freedoms and that they were likely to go even further to go back to the days when the right to an abortion was not a constitutionally protected freedom, but a matter that was left up to the political discretion, the political whims of each of the 50 states, depending on how lucky you were to be born or to live in any particular state. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, a Trump appointee, asked a series of questions, for example, about whether the court would simply be better off withdrawing from the abortion debate altogether and simply letting the states decide. Why should the court be the arbiter, uh, Kavanaugh asked. There will be different access in Mississippi and New York and Alabama and California. What's wrong with that? Well, abortion will soon become illegal, or severely restricted in roughly half the states in this country if Roe and Casey are overturned, as Mississippi is requesting. That, according to the Guttmacher Institute, a research organization that supports abortion rights, legislatures in many Republican-led states are already poised for action depending on the Supreme Court's next decision. They've already passed laws in fact, that say if Roe is done away with, that abortion would immediately become illegal in those states. That, as the court's three remaining liberal justices actually standing up today for freedom and liberty in all 50 states, said that reversing Roe and Casey would significantly damage the court's legitimacy, and I gotta believe they are right, Desi Doyen. You were up very early this morning, um, <laughs> following this, uh, pulling audio from these uh, from these hearings. You know, I, I'm not an attorney, but you didn't really have to be an attorney, I think, to follow much of this because a lot of it was not legal issues. A lot of it was, you know, stuff that has been argued before. But in this case, the only thing that has changed is there is a different court hearing these very same issues.
3: Yes, and that is exactly what uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor noted when uh, in this very specific exchange that she had when she noted that Mississippi state lawmakers in crafting their new ban explicitly Mm -hmm. stated that it was only because of the new makeup of the court, of the new justices that Trump added to the court, that they attempted to make this change.
0: Now, Um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said, we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates? In the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts, yeah, I, I, I don't see how it is possible. It's what Casey talked about when it talked about watershed decisions. Some of them, Brown versus Board of Education, it mentioned, and this one, have such an entrenched set of expectations in our society that this is what the court decided this is what we will follow that the that we won't be able to survive if people believe that everything including new york versus sullivan um, i could name any other set of rights including the second amendment by the way there are many political people who believe the court erred in um, seeing this as a personal right as as opposed to a militia right, if people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive?
1: Uh, Justice Sotomayor, I I think the concern about appearing political makes it absolutely imperative that the court reach a decision well-grounded in the Constitution. In text, structure, history, and tradition, and that carefully goes through the stare decisis factors we've laid out. No, it didn't. Casey went through
0: every one of them. You think it did it wrong? That's your belief. But Casey did that.
1: Casey, of course, being the 1992 case, where they actually did go through all of these uh, issues and decide uh, stare decisis, essentially saying that this is settled law that was. Mississippi Attorney General Scott Stewart responding to Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor.
3: Yes, and and Casey was also where they established the undue burden standard. They reaffirmed that women have the right to get an abortion, mm-hmm. but they then ap- established a standard to help decide in future cases when states try to further regulate that access. That
1: it was not so much based on viability, a time limit based on viability, but whether uh, adjusting that time limit uh, placed an undue burden. Or other the, restrictions yeah.
3: that they would put right. in were undue burdens right. that restricted the ability to access it, even if it was not inside the viability standard. Um, in another key exchange, Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, attempted to list several cases in which the Supreme Court had overturned previous precedents as if, see, we've done it before, why would right. this be any different? Yep. And suggested that maybe, that's where you a- had mentioned before, that maybe the court should be neutral in these cases because it's not a right that is explicitly enumerated in the Constitution. Now, in response to that, U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Perlogger, she noted that, the, yeah, those previous cases actually pretty much all expanded individual rights, did not revoke them, as would be happen in this case. And she also... So
1: those cases, meaning those cases where they overturned previous precedent. They overturned the precedent in order to expand the rights. Right. Like Plessy
3: versus Ferguson, the separate but equal doctrine was a pretty big one to overturn. But that's because it was where the court recognized that it had made an error and expanded civil rights. With
1: Brown v. Education. And and that was uh, expanding rights, unlike this, which would be removing Revoking. wrong established exactly rights. yeah so
3: u.s. solicitor general perlogger again she said that the court has already determined that issues of fundamental rights are not left up to state legislatures to pick and choose
4: why should this court be the arbiter rather
1: than uh congress the state legislatures state supreme courts the people being able to uh resolve this? And there'll be different answers in Mississippi and New York, uh, different answers in Alabama
3: than California. Why is that not the right answer?
4: Justice Kavanaugh, it's not the right answer because the court correctly recognized that this is a fundamental right of women. And The nature of fundamental rights is that it's not left up to state legislatures to decide whether to honor them or not. And it's true different rules would prevail throughout the country if this court were to overrule Roe and Casey. But what that would mean is that women in those states who are refusing uh, to honor their rights and who are forcing them to continue to use their bodies to sustain a pregnancy and then to bring a child into the world will have no recourse other than to travel if they're able to afford it uh, or to attempt abortion outside the confines of the medical system or to have a child uh, even though that was not the best choice for them and their family.
3: And also uh, a U.S. Solicitor General Prologger had mentioned basically that effectively this would create a different set of rights for women depending upon what state they live in, that that sort of violates the 14th Amendment, equal protection before the law. Um, and then finally that, that argument again uh, for Prologger Echoed her earlier opening remarks mm-hmm. that 50 years of precedents protecting women's fundamental rights to decide what happens with their own bodies, um, including that a state cannot force women to give birth, and that eliminating those protections imposes major burdens on women. And she notes that the court has never revoked individual rights.
4: For a half century, this court has correctly recognized that the Constitution protects a woman's fundamental right to decide whether to end a pregnancy before viability. That guarantee that the state cannot force a woman to carry a pregnancy to term and give birth has engendered substantial individual and societal reliance. Women who are unable to travel hundreds of miles to gain access to legal abortion will be required to continue with their pregnancies and give birth with profound effects on their bodies, their health, and the course of their lives. If this court renounces the liberty interest recognized in Roe and reaffirmed in Casey, it would be an unprecedented contraction of individual rights and a stark departure from principles of stare decisis. The court has never revoked a right that is so fundamental to so many Americans and so central to their ability to participate fully and equally in society. The court should not overrule this central component of women's liberty.
1: And, you know, that's an important point, that once these rights are established, the court does not take them away, does not take them back. And yet that's what's happening here in this moment. You know, a lot of this seems uh, just unthinkable to the point where I I think a lot of people don't even want to think about it because it does not seem real. It does not seem realistic, Des, that this is actually happening. But But newsflash, this is actually happening right now. And even if, you know, I I heard uh, some folks saying, oh, well, maybe uh, the Chief Justice... Uh, John Roberts will will decide to vote with the uh, with the, the 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 liberals. Even if he does, this still goes down five to four because they stole the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, even without Roberts, it's a five to four advantage.
3: Yes. Elections have consequences, it turns out, as we say quite often here. Um, One thing that uh, Chief Justice Roberts seemed to be trying to do was to thread the needle and Mm -hmm. look for a way to curtail these rights by suggesting that, hey, you know, 15 weeks should be plenty of time for a woman to decide and gather the resources and travel wherever she needs to go to terminate a pregnancy. And he never engaged with the uh, Department of Justice. argument that in Mississippi especially the majority of women do not have access to reproductive health care Mm -hmm. and they don't have uh, health insurance Mm -hmm. and they also have uh, live in poverty and that Mississippi has one of the highest maternal death rates Mm. in the country. So yeah the 15 weeks might be his way of trying to thread the needle through this in order to make it appear that the court isn't changing any of these rights but in reality this will probably set in motion a series of trigger laws in various states that, hey, once this goes, we're going to start banning even further.
1: Yeah. Mind you, you know, in Mississippi, by the way, there's there's only one uh, abortion clinic in the entire state. That is what they've got this down to. At this point, they've been able to shut down everyone else. And, um, you know, now they would just assume get rid of that one and send people out of state. Well, if you live in Mississippi... And you live next door to, you know, you're, you're nearby-ish to Alabama. Well, good luck getting there. The cost, whatever it takes to get there. The time off work that it takes to get there.
3: Arranging child care. Uh,
1: right. Or, hey, you can jump on over to Texas. Oh, Wait. There's pretty much no abortions allowed in Texas at all at this point. A month ago, the same justices heard arguments over the uh, uniquely designed Texas law that has succeeded in getting around the Roe and Casey decisions and has, at least for now, succeeded in banning abortions in the nation's second largest state after just about six weeks of pregnancy when many women don't even know they're pregnant. The uh, legal dispute over the Texas law revolves around whether the law can be challenged at all in federal court due to the way they wrote it. Uh, so they're just at this point discussing whether you know that challenge can happen. Not They're not even talking about the right to an abortion. Meanwhile, that right has been taken away entirely for everyone in Texas after six weeks. The uh, court was very fast in deciding to hear that law in Texas, but they have yet to rule on it. And the justices have refused in the meantime to put a hold on that law while they're deciding what to do about it. uh, I consider that to be another very bad sign for personal freedoms. A uh, decision on the Texas case that could come at any time. No one knows for certain. A decision in the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, as noted, is not expected in any event until uh, late June of next year. Uh, And that will be a little bit more than four months before next year's congressional elections, where whatever they decide could certainly become a campaign rallying cry for both sides at that point. For now, congressional Democrats are expressing fear and trepidation about all of this. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, said she's very worried about what this court will ultimately do. Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois said it could be the end of Roe v. Wade, and I think that's a really scary thing for women in this country. Uh, A number of senators, along with the vast majority of their caucus on the Democratic side, want to take abortion rights out of the hands of the stolen and packed Republican Supreme Court and enshrine them into law. Right now, with the Democrats razor-thin majority in the U.S. Senate, however, that's pretty much impossible. The House, on the other hand, has passed legislation to codify abortion rights They did that back in September, but the measure is pretty much dead on arrival in the Senate. Not pretty much dead, completely dead. The uh, filibuster in the Senate would demand the support of 10 Republicans in order to pass that bill. Good luck with that, given that the uh, GOP now largely defines itself by opposition to abortion access. And on the Democratic side... They're not all together on one page either on any of this. Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have refused to reform or limit el- eliminate the uh, Senate filibuster. You know, the same Senate rule that was eliminated in order to seat Donald Trump's three Supreme Court nominees on the bench in the first place. Manchin and Sinema are against, f- for now, doing away with that. But even if they did, Democrats do not have unanimity on preserving abortion access, even within their own caucus, as TPM points out. The Senate version of the bill that passed the House currently lacks the support of, yes, Joe Manchin and Senator Bob Casey, Democrat from Pennsylvania, both of whom are anti-abortion Uh, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth said, quote, we're going to have to pass some sort of legislation, but we can't do that in a 50 50 Senate. It really puts more importance on the upcoming election in 2022, she said. Well, yes, it does. And if Democrats are unable to hold a majority in both chambers, which at the moment seems unlikely next year, if only due to extreme partisan Republican gerrymandering of congressional districts, which, by the way, is also now made possible by the Republicans' stolen Supreme Court majority, if they're unable to hold a majority in both houses, then 2024 becomes even more important because they would need to gain their House majority back as well as have big pickups in the U.S. Senate in order to restore the liberty of abortion rights for women in all 50 states. But that only works... If there is a Democratic president in office at that point uh, after 2024, who would be willing to sign such a bill somehow if it was passed by both chambers? And that only works if our constitutional republic is able to stand up to attacks against it that are being carried out right now to ensure that a Republican is placed into the White House after 2024, no matter who the public actually elects at the ballot box. And while it's not covered nearly enough right now, given everything else that's going on at the very same time, the GOP plot to steal the 2024 presidential election is now well underway now across the country. Ignore it at your own peril. We won't and we will be joined momentarily by our guest today who is trying to offer the same warnings. No, it is not too early to take notice of this so we can hopefully somehow Take action on it. That's all ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
3: What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
1: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In Michigan, local GOP leaders have sought to reshape election canvassing boards by appointing members who expressed sympathy for former President Donald Trump's false claims that the 2020 vote was rigged. In two Pennsylvania communities, at least, candidates who embraced election fraud allegations won races last month to become local voting judges and inspectors. And in Colorado, Republican 2020 doubters are urging their followers on right-wing social media platforms to apply for jobs in election offices. A year after local and state election officials came under immense pressure from Trump to subvert the results of the 2020 White House race, according to The Washington Post, which, by the way, should have used the word steal, not subvert there just for accuracy. A year later, he and his supporters are pushing an ambitious plan to place Trump loyalists into key positions across the administration of U.S. elections. The effort goes far beyond the former president's public broadsides against well-known Republican state officials who certified President uh, Biden's victory, uh, such as Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. Citing the need to make elections more secure, Trump allies are also seeking to replace officials across the nation, including volunteer poll watchers, paid precinct judges, elected county clerks and state attorneys general, according to state and local officials, as well as rally speeches, social media posts and campaign appearances by those who are seeking those positions. If they succeed, the post argues Trump and his allies could pull down some of the guardrails that prevented him from overturning Biden's win in 2020 by creating openings to challenge the results next time, according to election officials and watchdog groups. The Post goes on to offer a long and detailed piece about how Republicans are now dismantling and or taking over the election apparatus all over the country. Not in order to steal the 2020 election, but to be prepared to do so in 2024. Though if you listen to Trump lackey Steve Bannon, currently facing two contempt of Congress indictments for his refusal to testify and share documents with the bipartisan House Select Committee investigating Trump's January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol in his last desperate bid to steal the 2020 election... Uh, Many on the right are not only planning to steal the next election, but even believe that they can somehow still steal the last one. Here's Bannon on his popular daily radio show slash podcast called The War Room. There are no whining and no tears in the war room. We're taking action. And that action is we're taking over school boards. We're taking over the Republican Party through the precinct committee strategy. We're taking over all the elections. Suck on this. And we're going to get to the bottom of three November and we're going to decertify the electors. Okay, and you're going to have a constitutional crisis.
3: But you know what? We're a big and tough country and we can handle that.
1: There is no fear, no fear on the right, at least from Steve Bannon. A constitutional crisis is actually the goal. It is not the fear on the right. Of course, the nonsense about 2020 well that's a grift it's the way that bannon and scores of other on the right make their living right now by duping their supporters into believing that donald trump will still somehow be restored to office in place of joe biden they know it's a fantasy bannon knows it's a fantasy whether their duped gullible supporters do or not well that's another question but the threat to steal 2024 In a way that they were not prepared to do in 2020, well, that is a very real threat that we all ignore at our own peril, even now. Writing this week at Truthout, Kenny Bruno warns Donald Trump and the Republican Party have laid the groundwork for assuming the U.S. presidency in 2024, regardless of the result of the election. And if they choose to pursue this plan, most of the conditions they would need to execute are already in place. Kenny Bruno joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the broadcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Now Fortunately, I think we already know what it will be. At least Kenny Bruno does. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Kenny Bruno is a longtime environmental activist who has worked for Greenpeace, Earth Rights International, Corporate Ethics, Oil Change International, and many other groups. He's co-author of Greenwash, the reality behind corporate environmentalism, and EarthSummit.biz, the corporate takeover of sustainable development. He's also senior advisor to Cloud Mountain Foundation, who, by way of full disclosure, I should note, has contributed to the Brad blog in the past. But despite Bruno's cred as an environmentalist, it is not for that reason that I wanted to have him on today. It's because of his op-ed at Truth Out this week, arguing and summarizing the way in which, as the headline for his piece reads, Donald Trump has already laid the groundwork to subvert the 2024 election. Now, I would have used the word steal there. Rather than subvert, but as this is all a point that we have been trying to hammer home for months and even warned about while Trump's last attempt to steal the 2020 election was underway last year, while much of the media were ignoring it or moving on to cover the transition to Joe Biden's presidency as, you know, just business as usual, I thought it would be helpful right now to sort of stop and explain the case, to explain where we are now headed in 2024 unless something changes and unless both the media and Democrats and Republicans who still give a damn about democracy, if there are any out there, uh, to make sure that everyone is at least put well on notice now, not the day after the 2024 election or even after the 2022 election, which, by the way, I believe will be their practice run. Kenny Bruno, welcome to the broadcast, sir.
5: Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad, and thanks for all the great work you're doing to uncover this stuff.
1: Thank you, sir, uh, and thanks for your piece of truth out. We, you know, we, as as noted, we've sort of been making the case in bits and pieces that you sort of smartly bring all together into one. Simple sumnation, a short piece, your piece of truth out. So I sort of wanted to, to reset a bit today now that others are beginning to grapple with this uh, threat. The Washington Post is noticing it uh, to explain how, you know, what I see as a very specific plan to launch a very specific assault on our constitutional republic using Kenny, What would appear to be constitutional means to do so and and how all of this is being laid out at the state and congressional levels, presuming Republicans can retake the majority in next year's midterm elections and then hold on to it during the 2024 presidential election. How do you see this plot uh, being carried out? Because I think you've laid it out very smartly and directly, uh, arguing that pretty much all of this is now already in place today
5: right well the first thing i want to say is that i think it is a plan and often you see it covered or you see various aspects covered as if they were disparate things mm-hmm. like the treatment of liz cheney the sham audit in arizona the repetition of the big lie the changes uh, the new state voter suppression laws mm-hmm. in 19 states covered in as if they were kind of disparate things but the simplest explanation is that they're all part of a plan And if you were, uh, if you, Brad, were egotistical and ruthless enough, I'm not saying you are, but if you were ruthless enough (laughs) Mm -hmm. to want to be president, and you didn't care whether you won or lost the election, and you just wanted to be president, what would you need? Think about it that way, work backwards from there. And I think some of the elements are that you would want to undermine faith in elections, you would want radical state legislatures, especially in swing states, Mm -hmm. You would want a majority of states with a majority of loyal members of Congress. You would want to purge moderate representatives and election officials, and that's what the article you were talking about um, in the intro mm-hmm. laid out in a pretty terrifying way. Yep. Um, you would want to purge election officials who might not go along with ending democracy, who might not play ball. You would want a compliant Supreme Court. You would want to intimidate the election officials who are left. And I could go on a little bit, but you get the picture that these are the things you need in place. And if you look now at Trump and the GOP, most of those boxes are already checked. So I think that's the main point I want to make. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are part of a comprehensive plan. What's funny to me is that I'm not an elections expert. And I see this plan, and it terrifies me. I don't really know why more people aren't freaking out about it Mm -hmm. and why the Democrats don't seem to be uh, preparing a counter plan. In my view, the Democratic Party, for all its flaws and weaknesses, is the only entity that can stop this plan. I think it's true what you said before, that Republicans could, in theory, but it doesn't look like um, any of them have the will to do that. So the question, then, is if, if this is right, then you know what should the Democrats or other entities do for a counter plan. If you know your opponent has a plan, you better have a counter plan, and mm-hmm. I don't see it
1: and and I'll get to the Democrats here in a minute. The uh, you know, how all of the the pieces you sort of ran through there, uh, you know, will will be used, as you say, assuming Trump runs for president. I'll get to that in a moment as well. Uh, how will all of those pieces then be used if if it can be uh, easily described here? Uh, as you write, between Election Day and December 16 of 2024. That's the date that the electors in each state will meet to formally vote for president and vice president. How will these pieces sort of come together uh, in a way that Republicans were not prepared to do back in in, in 2020?
5: Right. So my understanding is the way it works is that each state sends their slate of electors to Congress for certification that's mm-hmm. the process that became famous on January 6 um, most Americans probably never paid attention to it because it was considered pro forma mm-hmm. but if the state legislatures in swing states many of which are now very radicalized and have also passed really draconian new voter suppression laws mm-hmm. including like for example the Georgia law which allows state election boards to take over as many as four county election boards yep. so what could happen what i see happening is that in several states there will be enough chaos for example competing slates of electors that the governor sends one slate the state legislature sends another state or they replace the boards and they don't meet the safe harbor deadline in other words they don't um send slate in time Mm -hmm. then on january 6th and i believe it does come on the same date in 2025 as it came in 2021 Mm -hmm. easy to remember Mm -hmm. on january 26 2025 when congress opens the envelopes they might very well say nobody has 270 electoral votes Mm -hmm. therefore no one has won the election at that point it goes to congress to the house to select the president and the way it's done is that state by state so whichever party has enough states with a majority of members mm-hmm. right so this is not a majority of the house of representatives this is a majority of states with a majority
1: of members it's the state delegate whoever has the majority of the uh whichever party has the majority of state delegations in each state essentially right yeah
5: and that's and that's assuming that everybody votes on party lines. Mm-hmm. Which is why the purging of moderates who might not go along with the ending of democracy here is mm-hmm. also a very important part of this plan. Yeah. But let's assume that that it goes along party lines. Right now, twenty seven states have a majority of Republican members of Congress, mm-hmm. twenty have a majority Democrats, and three are tied. Mm-hmm. That will probably not change in a in a way that matters by January sixth. 2025. If it did, that would be that would be significant. Um, but in that scenario, when when there's enough chaos and enough controversy um, that no one has 270 uh, electoral votes, mm-hmm. it will be decided by the House of Representatives. The Senate would would choose the vice president. By the way, mm-hmm. and they could choose it. They could choose a Democrat for all we know. But mm-hmm. that person would have to work for the.
1: For the Republican uh, <laughs> right. president, yeah. yeah, and and by the way, and just to right. underscore, you know, when we talk about the majority, uh, and and what it is that Republicans are trying to do right now, but we're talking about the majority of delegations, House, uh, you know, state right. delegations in the House. For example, Wyoming only has one representative, so. Uh, And that's one vote. That's one vote. That is, you know, one vote towards a contested presidential election. In this case, that one vote currently is Liz Cheney, who would probably not be inclined to vote for Donald Trump, which is, of course, just one of the reasons why Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and all the rest are going so hard against Liz Cheney. Replace her... And you win one more state in a contested presidential vote. And I should also underscore that I think a lot of people think, well, you know, we don't have to worry about it because uh, Kamala Harris is the, will be the vice president, unlike Mike Pence, etc. Well, if Kamala Harris opens that box uh, with the electoral votes in it and there is no clear majority because they, the Republicans have gamed it at the state level... She'll have no choice but to throw it to the House, you know, according to the Constitution and so forth. So that's sort of what they had hoped uh, Mike Pence would do back in 2020, that he would just pretend there was no clear majority and throw it to the House. Now they're putting in, in place a means to do exactly that no matter what happens in Congress, to do it sort of at the state level. Uh, Kenny, uh, helpfully, you do offer—and I just want people to understand, this is a very real thing. And, you know, you talk about all these disparate pieces coming together. It does sound like some sort of a massive conspiratorial plot, the type of which the Republicans would accuse Democrats of. But each of these pieces— They're actually doing it. There is evidence to support the fact that they're actually doing it. This is real. This is not a crazy conspiracy, and people need to understand that, particularly in the media and, yes, the Democrats. Uh, Before I get to the Democrats, Kenny, uh, you do offer at least four different ways to, uh, as you put it, guard against the possibility that the 2024 election could unfold in this way. Can Can you quickly step through those four items at least to just give us some hope here that this doesn't have right. to happen
5: <laughs> right and and i hope i'm wrong that there are more but these are the ones that i could come up with mm-hmm. um one is uh in the 2022 elections if the house of representatives ends up having more than 20 26 or more states with dem with a majority of democratic members mm-hmm. because of as we just described mm-hmm. the process because of that that would be one way mm-hmm. another way that isn't a guarantee, but certainly would help, would be to pass the Freedom to Vote Act, Mm -hmm. because depending on what ends up in it, if it passes, it could counter a lot of the provisions in the state bills that were recently passed. Mm -hmm. And that could be very important, for example, in Georgia. A kind of out there idea, but but it could work, is for President Biden to appoint and the Senate to confirm four or more new Supreme Court justices who wouldn't... Play ball with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm presuming in this that if the Republicans do this plan, that it would eventually end up not only in state supreme courts but also in federal court as a I mean, mm-hmm. as a matter of you know protection of, of civil rights. Oh,
1: it would it would so ab- absolutely go to the so, Supreme Court. Yeah, for absolutely. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Right.
5: So you right now we have a Supreme Court that was that is compliant, mm-hmm. complacent, cooperative with this plan, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, So appointing four or more new justices would change that. Um, And then there's another kind of -of out-of-the-box idea, which is that under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, anyone who has pledged allegiance to the Constitution of the United States cannot hold office if they have engaged in insurrection against that Constitution Mm -hmm. of the United States. So, in theory, if you participated in the insurrection, you cannot run Again, for all you cannot run it for re-election, and the Secretary of State in each state would decide whether um, whether it this whether Section Three of the Fourteenth applies to you or not. Mm-hmm. So you have to be courageous as a Secretary of State, but you could do it. You could say that Donald Trump participated in insurrection and is not eligible to be on the ballot.
2: Which is so some... those
5: are four. Those yeah. are four ways, um, and none of them is a guarantee to stop the plan. Mm-hmm. But uh, all of them, any and all of them, would help.
1: And any of and all of them are uh, difficult to carry out in many right. ways. Uh, you know, electoral resistance with a Democratic majority, that's going to be difficult just because of the gerrymandering. The legislative resistance, obviously, we have seen with, uh, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, their reluctance to reform the filibuster to allow some, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act to pass. Biden has not wanted to add uh, members to the Supreme Court, but even to do that would require overcoming the filibuster. You're going to run into the same problem. And, you know, the idea of uh, saying that Trump is in violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, therefore is disqualified from even being on the ballot. Well, of course, that is going to meet all sorts of resistance. So there are options. Not a lot of them are very good or promising, Kenny, right now, anyway.
5: Well, yes, you know, that, that's really true. They're long shots. Mm-hmm. What I want to, the message that I wanted to convey with the article is that you need to take drastic action if there's a severe threat. These are drastic steps. Um, mm-hmm. Well, maybe, maybe reforming the filibuster shouldn't be that drastic, but it seems like an uphill battle right now. But the others certainly seem like provocative steps in some ways, um, but they're warranted mm-hmm. because the threat to democracy is so severe. I called originally, you know, you you criticized the title by saying subvert instead of steal. I just want to sort of defend myself by saying, of course, the editors wrote that. <laughs> yes. My original title was DEF was CON for Democracy. Yep. "Defcon" CON, the military for, you know, terminology for le- different levels of threat. And so I, I think if you understand the threat to be that severe, then you have to take drastic action. And unless you're talking about it and preparing people for drastic action, they're not even going to understand why it's justified.
2: Which is so ex- exa- I,
5: I think that's my message is that this is a real threat. It's a real plan. It is being carried out. The evidence is that it is being carried out. And if you want to stop it, You might have to take some drastic action, and these are some of the
1: options. And at least you have to recognize that it actually is happening. Uh, Kenny, you argue that uh, this is a five-alarm fire and DEFCON for democracy, as you say, yet right now no elected Democrat is consistently sounding the alarm about what you describe as this nightmare scenario. I'm I'm not certain I agree with you there, as it seems that there are many uh, Democrats, in fact— Who at the very least have been sounding the alarm in regard to passage of the of both the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, both of which would. Uh, at least go at least some distance in protecting uh, the election and and voters' ability to cast a vote and to to stop partisan uh, gerrymandering and so forth. But uh, where they are, where Democrats are not doing enough, as you see it, uh, wh- where are they falling short? Uh, and and what would you like to see them do? And and why? Above and beyond, you know, it's Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema who are holding up. Changing the filibuster, what could Democrats uh, do above and beyond what they're doing now?
5: Well, first of all, let me say that I would love to be wrong about any of this. And so if you're right that Democrats are talking about it more consistently than I recognize, I'm really, really happy to be wrong about that. And I'd really be happy to be wrong about the whole thing,
2: Mm -hmm. quite honestly.
5: So I think the most important thing at the moment is probably to talk about it to call it out Mm. because if you don't socialize people to the idea that this um, steel subversion gaming Mm. of the Electoral College is underway they won't really be ready to accept your actions to defend it Mm. so you have to you have to basically call it out so I would expect there to be floor speeches not I expect it. I would hope to hear floor speeches every day, articles by members of Congress, by secretaries of state, call, you know, expressing their dismay about this exact thing. There are many things that they're dismayed about, but I think they need to recognize again the plan around the election, to you know, heads I win, tails I lose, tails you lose plan mm-hmm. that that Trump has. Uh, and talk about it first and foremost, and then I do think somehow they have to get to mention that he cannot, yes, okay, he loves the filibuster, it's a tradition, the minority has rights, but this is far more important than the filibuster, and somehow he has to be uh, brought along based on the severity of the threat, based on the DEF CON level, which, you know, filibuster is not a DEF CON
1: situation, which is one of the reasons that I've been, you know, trying to I think language is important here. It's one of the reasons I've been, you know, trying to yell and scream that no, uh, Trump was not trying to overturn the results. He wasn't trying to subvert the results. He was trying to steal the election. In 2020. And if we start describing it as such, because I believe that's accurate, then, you know, the the threat, I think the threat level is lifted when we're now talking about, hey, he didn't succeed at his attempt to violently steal the 2020 election, but they are preparing right now to do what they couldn't do in 2020, and that is now to steal the 2024 election. Uh, Kenny, I've got just about 30 seconds here, but, uh, you know, I'm not altogether convinced that uh, Trump will actually be running again in 2024. I think he might be indicted by then, though that might Make him want to run more. I don't know. I'm not sure he liked the job very much, even though he loved the power that that came with it. So I think he may just milk it as long as possible to rake in as much cash as possible before he says he won't run. Either way, does this plan work if Donald Trump is not running again in 2024? Are the are the other potential GOP candidates actually willing to carry out this plot to steal an election in his absence, and and would it even work for them if if he's not there to mastermind it?
5: Well, first of all, let me say again, I hope you're right and I'm wrong. I think he'll run. I (laughs) hope I'm wrong. Okay. But I think, in theory, it is possible for this to work for another candidate, but I think it'll be much more difficult because one of the things that's emerged, one of the things that the right-wing has accomplished lately is this unity behind one person.
2: Mm -hmm. And
5: Without that, without the unity, loyalty, and fear, uh, this plan could fall apart. I can't can't predict anything Mm because I don't know who would be the nominee if it wasn't him, Mm -hmm. but unless they command this kind of loyalty and unity,
1: uh, I, I think it could fall apart. The first thing, uh, first things first, as you know, Kenny Bruno, uh, people need to understand what this plot is and how it is right now being put in place. Just one of the reasons why, by the way, uh, by full disclosure, I'm, I'm a, a, a plaintiff uh, challenging SB 202 in Georgia, the law there that allows, among other things, uh, the state legislature to replace election officials with, you know, whatever partisan they want to allow them to overturn the results any way they want. Pay attention. Folks can check out your piece, and I hope they will, at truthout.org. I will link to it when we post today's show at Bradblog. Headline, Trump has already laid the groundwork to subvert the 2024 election uh, from our friend Kenny Bruno. Kenny, really appreciate you joining us today. Really appreciate you being one of democracy's Cassandras at this point to try to sound the alarm, sir. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be on. Thank you. All right, we have got to get out. I'm yes. running late here and uh, following one of the grimmest broadcasts of all time. <sighs> well, Although it then, is what it is. And there's a lot of competition there for that, too. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we got to go. Thank you very much uh, to our producer, Desi Doyan, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Hey, while you're there, please consider hitting one of those donate buttons or just going to bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwave so we can also be your Cassandras. Hmm. You can drop me an email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. I'll see you there until we see you here again, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.